Chapter Ten of the Girl Who Had Nothing. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by May Rose. The Girl Who Had Nothing by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. Chapter Ten, The Coop of the Planet. About half past five, a plump old countrywoman with a brown tissue veil over her ruddy wrinkled face waddled into a green grocer's not far from south audley street she bade the young man in the shop a wheezy good day and asked if she might be bold enough to inquire whether lady henry browdaler's housekeeper were a customer yes the youth admitted with pride for anything in their line which was not sent up from the marquis of wastewaters in the country they had the honour of serving her ladyship ah i thought it would be your place being so near, and the nicest roundabout, said the old countrywoman. The truth is, I have to go to the house on a disagreeable errand. I volunteered to do it for a friend, and I've forgotten the number. I've to break some bad news to one of the housemaids. Not Miss Jessie Adams, I hope, protested the young man, blushing up to the roots of his light hair. Yes, it is poor Jessie, said the old woman. You know her? We've been walking out together the last six months. I suppose her father's took bad again, or or worse? He's living, or was when I left, but— And the old-fashioned bonnet with the veil shook ominously. Well, I must go and do my duty. I hope she'll be able to get home for a week or so. A few minutes later, Joan, delighted with her disguise and the detective skill she was developing, rang the servant's bell at the bar dailies. She had learned what she had hoped to learn, the name of one of the maids, and she had also learned something more, the fact that Jessie Adams had a father whose state of health would afford an excuse for absence, and the existence of a lover who would probably urge immediate marriage if there were enough money on either side. The old countrywoman with the brown veil was voluble to the footman who opened the door. She explained that she had news from home for Jessie Adams, and was shown into a servant's sitting-room where presently appeared a fresh-looking girl with languishing eyes and a full, weak mouth. "'Oh, I thought perhaps it would be Aunt Emmy,' exclaimed the young person in cap and apron. "'No, I'm not Aunt Emmy, but you may take it I'm a friend,' replied the old woman. "'Don't be frightened. Your father ain't so very bad, but your folks would be glad to have you at home if you could manage it. And look here, my girl, here's good news for you. You may take a tidy bit of money by going.' If you can get off at once, this very night, how much must you and that nice young man of yours put by before you can marry? We can't marry till he sets up in business for himself, and it will take a hundred pounds at least, said the girl. We've each got about ten pounds saved towards it, but what's ten pounds? Added on to ninety, it makes a hundred, and you can earn that by lending your place here for one fortnight to a niece of mine who wants to be a journalist and write what the doings inside a smart house are like. She'd name no names, so you'd never be given away. All you'd have to do would be to tell the housekeeper your father was took bad, and would she let you go if you'd bring your cousin Maria in your stead, a clever, experienced girl with the best references from Lord Northmore's house. My goodness me, you take my breath away, gasped Jessie Adams. How do I know but your niece is a thief who'd steal her ladyship's jewels? You don't know, except that I say it she isn't. 
But anyhow, what does it matter to you? You don't need to come back or ever be in service again. Here's the ninety pounds in gold, my dear. You can buy every piece if you wish, and you'd but to do it what I say to get them before you'll walk out of this house. You settle matters with the housekeeper, and I'll have my niece call on her within the hour. The girl with the languishing eyes and the weak mouth had her price. Like many of her betters, it had happened to be exactly ninety pounds. Joan had brought a hundred, and considered that she had made a bargain. Jessie consented to speak to the housekeeper, and the countrywoman departed. By this time it was dusk. She took a four-wheeler and drove to the gates of the park. In a dark and lonely spot on the outer disguise she whisked off, and the paint wiped from her face. Underneath her shawl she wore a neat black dress, suitable for a housemaid in search of a situation. This too Joan had thoughtfully obtained, at a Clarkson's whence her pale blue cloth had been dispatched by messenger to Woburn Place. The bonnet was quickly snapped into a hat. The stuffing, which had plumped out the thin girlish form, was wrapped in the shawl which had concealed it, and hidden under a bush. Joan's own hair was combed primly back from her forehead, and strained so tightly at the sides as to change the expression on her face completely. Cousin Maria was as different from Miss Joan Cathrew as a mouse is from a bird of paradise. Cream could not be more velvety soft than Joan's voice, the eye of a dove more mild than hers as she conversed with Lady Henry Borrowdaly's housekeeper, and she was armed with a magnificent reverence. There had been a Maria Jordan at Lord Northmore's as housemaid in Joan's stay there, but the real Maria had gone to America and it was safe and simple to write in praise of this young person's character and accomplishments, signing the document Mercy Milton. At worst, even if Lady Henry's housekeeper sent the reference to Lord Northmore's housekeeper, the imposition could not be proved. Maria might have had the time to come back from America, and Miss Milton, now departed, might have consented to please the housemaid by giving her a written recommendation. But Maria Jordan's manner as an applicant to fill her cousin's place was so respectful and respectable, and the need to decide was so pressing that Lady Henry's housekeeper resolved to accept Jordan, so to speak, on face value. The same night Jessie Adams went home, or somewhere else, and her cousin stepped into the vacant niche. Meanwhile, Joan had, on the plea of picking up her luggage, driven to one or two cheap shops in the Tottenham Court Road, and provided herself with a tin box and a suitable outfit for a superior housemaid. She was thankful to find that she would have a room to herself, and delighted to discover that Jessie Adams and Mathilde, Lady Henry's own maid, had been on terms of friendship. Their rooms adjoined, Jessie had been teaching Mathilde English in odd moments, and Mathilde had often obligingly carried messages to the enamoured greengrocer. Joan lost not a moment in winning her way into Mathilde's good graces, wasting less time because she had already made preparations with a view to such an end. She had bought a large box of delicious sweets, which she pretended her own young man had given her, and this she placed at the French girl's disposal. It happened that Lady Henry was dining out and going to the theatre afterwards that night, and Mathilde, being free, visited Maria easily in her room, 
where she sat on the bed, swinging her well-shoed feet and eating cream chocolates. Maria, in the course of conversation, chanced to mention that her young man was the partner of a French hairdresser in Knightsbridge, that the two were intimate friends, and the hairdresser was young, singularly handsome, well-to-do, and looking out for a Parisini as a wife. This admirable tradition was in France at present, on business, Maria added. But he would return in the course of a fortnight, when Maria's young man should effect an introduction, and she was sure that Monsieur Jacques would fall in love at first sight with Mathilde. Mathilde pretended indifference, but she thought Maria the nicest girl she had met in England, far more chic than Jessie, and when she heard that her new friend longed to be a lady's maid, she offered to coach her in the art. Maria was gushingly grateful, for though she had, she said, already acted as maid for one or two ladies, they had not been swells like Lady Henry, and lessons from Mathilde would be of inestimable value. I suppose, she went on coaxingly, that if I showed you I could do hair nicely, and understood what was wanted of a lady's maid, you would be took ill and give me a chance to try my hand on Lady Henry? Practice on her ladyship would be worth a lot of lessons, wouldn't it? My goodness, I'd give all my savings for such a chance in a house like this. Think of the help it would be to me afterwards to say I'd been understudy, as you might call it, to a real expert like Mathilde, Lady Henry Borrowdale's own maid, and given great satisfaction in the part. I ain't joking, mademoiselle. I've got twenty-five sovereigns saved up, and if you'll have neuralgia so bad you can't lift your head from the pillow for three or four days, those twenty-five sovereigns are yours. May, for me to have the neuralgia, it does not make that me lady take you for my place, said the laughing Mathilde. No, but leave that to me. You shall have the money just the same. All right, said Mathilde, giggling, scarce believing that her friend was in earnest. I have the neuralgia. Tomorrow, Joan sprang up and went to the new tin box. She bent over it for a moment, with her back to Mathilde. Then she turned with a stocking in her hand, a stocking, fat in the foot and tied round the ankle with a bit of ribbon. Count what's there, she exclaimed, emptying the stocking in Mathilde's lap. There was gold and silver, and even a little copper. Altogether, the sum amounted to that which Maria had named, and a few shillings over. Mathilde was dazzled. What with this bird in her hand, and another in the bush, the eligible hairdresser, she was ready to do almost anything for Maria. Later that night, in undressing Lady Henry, she complained of suffering such agony that she feared for the morrow. Luckily, should she be incapacitated for the short time, there is a girl now in the house, a young person in the place of the first housemaid, absent on account of trouble in the family, who had been a lady's maid and knew her business. Lady Henry was too sleepy to care what might happen tomorrow. Indeed, scarcely listened to Mathilde's murmurings, but when tomorrow was today, and a sweet-faced, sweet-voiced girl announced that Mathilde could not leave her bed, the spoiled beauty remembered last night's conversation. After some grumbling, she consented to try what Jordan could do, and while the second housemaid pouted over Maria's work, Maria was busy ingratiating herself with Lady Henry ingratiating herself so thoroughly that Mathilde would have trembled jealously for the future she could have seen or heard. Joan was one of those rare creatures, born for success, who set their teeth, 
an unbreakable resolve to do whatever they must do well. Being a lady herself, with all a lady's fastidious tastes, she knew how a lady liked to be waited upon. She was not attracted by Lady Henry, whom men called an angel and women a cat, but she was as attentive as if her whole happiness depended on her mistress's approbation. Mathilda was efficient, but frivolous and flighty, sometimes inclined to sulkiness, and Lady Henry, separably indifferent to the sufferings of servants, decided that she would not be sorry if Mathilde were ill a long time. Two or three days went by. Joan kept the Parisini supplied with bonbons and French novels, and carried off all her meals, arranged almost as daintily as if they had been for her ladyship. Mathilde was happy, and Joan was waiting. But her patience was not to be tried for long. On the third day, she was told that her mistress was dining at home, alone with Lord Henry. This was such an unusual event that Joan was sure it meant something, especially when Lady Henry demanded one of her prettiest frocks. A footman, inclined to be Maria's slave, was smiled upon, intercepted during dinner, and questioned. "'They're behaving like turtle-doves,' said he. Joan had expected this. "'That little cat has guessed or discovered that everything is settled, and she means to get the truth out of him.' this evening, so that somehow she can give the news to the Daily Beacon. Tonight, in time to go to the press for tomorrow, the girl reflected. She was excited, but the great moment had come, and she kept herself rigidly under control, for much depended upon calmness and fertility and resource. They will have their coffee in Lady Henry's wardrobe, Joan reflected, and that is when she will get to work. She thought thus on her way upstairs, carrying a dress of Lady Henry's, from which she had been brushing the marks of a muddy carriage wheel. She laid it on a chair, and saw on another milliner's box. Her mistress had not mentioned that she was expecting anything, and Joan's curiosity was aroused. She untied the fastenings, lifted a layer of tissue paper, and saw a neat, dark green tailor dress, with a torque made of the same material and a little velvet. There was also a long, plain coat of the green cloth with gold buttons, and on the breast pocket was embroidered an old design in gold thread. Joan suddenly became thoughtful. This dress was an unlike as possible to the butterfly style which Lady Henry affected, and all who knew her knew that she detested dark colors. Yet this costume was distinctly sombre and severe, and the name of the milliners was unfamiliar to Joan. It's like a disguise, the girl said to herself, and I'll bet anything that's what it's for. She went to a strange milliner, she made a point of the things being ready tonight, she chose a costume which would absolutely change her appearance if worn with a thick veil, and then that bit of embroidery on the pocket why it's a miniature copy of the design they print under the title of the bacon it is a beacon flaming she means to slip out of the house when she's got the secret safe and somebody at the office of the paper will have been ordered to take the a veiled woman with such a dress as this upon to the port house's private office without her speaking a word well a woman will go there but i hope it won't be lady henry Without stopping for an instant's further reflection, Joan caught up the box and flew with it to her own room, 
where she pushed it under the bed. She then watched her chance, and when no one was in sight, darted into the boudoir, where she squeezed herself behind the screen, close to the door. She might have found a more convenient hiding place, but this, though uncomfortable, gave her an advantage. If the two persons she expected to enter the room elected to sit near the fireplace, as they probably would, Joan might be able to steal noiselessly away without being seen or heard. She had not much time to spare, for ten minutes after she had plastered herself against the wall, Lord and Lady Henry came in. They went to the sofa in front of the fire and chatted of commonplace until after the coffee and orange mariner had been brought. Then Lady Henry took out her jeweled cigarette case, gave a cigarette to her husband, and took one herself. To light hers from his, she perched on Lord Henry's knee, remaining in that position to play with his hair, her white fingers flashing with rings. She cooed to her husband prettily, saying how nice it was to be with him alone, and how it grieved her to see him weary and worried. Is that old Russian bear going to take hands and dance prettily with little Japan and big China, darling? she purred. You know, precious, talking to me is as safe as talking to yourself. I know, my pet. Thank goodness the strain is over. England and France together have brought such pressure to bear that Russia was in a funk. The ultimatum was issued. Oh, then the ultimatum was sent? Yes, if Russia had held firm, nothing could have prevented war. But for obvious diplomatic reasons, the papers must not be able to state officially that any negations of the sort have ever taken place. There has been a rumor, but that will die out. Ah, well, I'm glad there won't be war. But as you're not a soldier and can't be killed, it wouldn't have broken my heart. Kiss me, and let's talk of something amusing. Your poor pet gets a headache if she has to think of affairs of state too long. Joan did not wait for the end of the last sentence. She began with the utmost caution to move the further end of the screen forward until she could reach the door handle. With infinite patience, she turned the knob at the rate of an inch a minute until it was possible to open the door. She then pulled it slowly, very slowly, towards her. At last she could slip into the corridor, where she had an instant of sickening fear, lest she should be detected by a passing servant. Luck was with her, however, but instead of seizing the chance to run upstairs unseen, she stopped, shut the door as softly as it had been opened, then knocked. Lady Henry's voice, with a ring of relief, called, Come in. Joan showed herself on the threshold and announced that a person from France Quetz of George Street had called to say that by mistake a costume ordered by Lady Henry had been sent to the wrong address, but that search would at once be made and the box brought to South Audley Street as soon as found. Lady Henry sprang up with an exclamation of anger and called down the vengeance of the gods upon the house of Francois. Might I suggest, your ladyship, that I go with this messenger and make sure of bringing back the box if the dress is a valuable one? asked Joan. Lady Henry caught at this idea. 
Joan was bidden to run away and not to come back till she had the box. I will give you a sovereign if you bring it home before midnight, she added. Joan walked calmly out with the box from Franz Quetz, took a cab, and drove to Woburn Place, where, in her own room, she dressed herself as Lady Henry had intended to be dressed. The frock and coat fitted sufficiently well, for Jordan and her mistress were somewhat the same figure. An embroidered black veil with one of chiffron underneath completely hid her features, and heavily perfumed with Lady Henry's favourite scent. At precisely a quarter to eleven, she presented herself at the office of the Daily Beacon. A gesture of a gloved hand towards the flaming gold on the coat was as if a password had been spoken. She was conducted to a private office on the first floor, and there received by a bearded red-faced man who sprang up on her entrance. "'Well, well,' he demanded. The veiled and scented lady put her finger to her lips. "'Shh!' she breathed. Then, disguising her voice by whispering, she went on, "'Russia, China, and Japan have signed the alliance in spite of England and France.' whom they have defied very insolently, and it's only a question of a short time before the storm breaks. There, that's all, in a nutshell. I must run away at once. A thousand thanks. You're a brick. Mr. Porthius pressed the glove hand and left a check in it. We shall go to the press with this immediately. Joan glanced at the check, saw it was for seven hundred pounds, and despised Lady Henry for cheapening the market. Her waiting cab drove her a few streets further on to the office of the planet. A card with the name of Miss Carthrew and important private business scrawled upon it was the open sesame to Sir Edmund Foster's door. Have you your checkbook handy? she nonchalantly asked. What for? Quid pro quo. Joan rushed into her whole story, which she told from beginning to end proving its truth by showing Mr. Porthius's check made out to Miss Anne Randall. Lady Henry, no doubt, has an account somewhere under that name. She's too sharp to use her own, added the girl. Do you believe me now? Yes, you're wonderful. I shall risk printing this news exactly as you have given it to me. You won't regret your trust, but I don't want your check tonight. I'll take it tomorrow when I can say, I told you so. Would you still like to come on our staff at a salary of ten pounds a week? No, thank you, Sir Edmund. I've brought off my big coop, and anything more in the newspaper line would be, I fear, an anti-climax. Besides, I want to play with my fifteen hundred pounds. What shall you do now? Go back to the house which has the honour of being my home, change my clothes, hurry breathlessly to South Audley Street, and inform Lady Henry that her costume can't be found. She will then, in desperation, decide to send a note to the Daily Beacon, which my prophetic soul whispers she will order me to take. Shall you go? Out of the house. Yes, never, never to return. For my work there is done, but not to the office of the Beacon. Lady Henry's box shall be sent to her by parcel post tomorrow morning, and Miss Randall's check will be in the coat pocket. That will surprise her a little, but it won't matter to me, for after having called here for my check, I think I'll take 
the two o'clock train for the continent. I shall have plenty of money to enjoy myself, and I feel I need a change of air. You are wonderful, repeated Sir Edmund Foster. End of chapter 10 of The Girl Who Had Nothing Read by May Rose